Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Yellow Tech Road Podcast. I am your host, Omar. Thank you again for joining me on the podcast. Really, really appreciate the feedback and the people who have been listening to the podcast so far. And we're just going to keep it going. You know, we're just going to keep talking about tech, keep talking about a deeper thought process in tech. And today's episode is a little bit of a continuation of something we started talking about last week. So last week we went over the fact that Samsung and Microsoft have this partnership, how this affects positively Samsung and Microsoft's bottom line in the phone and desktop space respectively. But also a brief thing towards the end was how Google is impacted by the fact that Samsung, their biggest OEM partner, is now in bed with Microsoft, a primary competitor of theirs, not only in the desktop space with Windows v Chrome OS, but in the cloud services space as well. If you think about any Google service that you use on Android, there is an alternative made by Microsoft that's pretty good. For your Google Drive, OneDrive is a very viable competitor, especially if you use Office 365. If you have an Office 365 subscription, $70 a year, you get all of Microsoft's Office apps and the one terabyte of, of OneDrive cloud storage that can be accessible on Android and you could set up auto backup and it's pretty nice. For Gmail, there's Outlook. For Google Photos, there's OneDrive's built-in photo gallery. Obviously, the Office Suite, Microsoft Office versus Google Docs and the G Suite. So as you go up and down the list, Microsoft has many competitors in that space, in addition to making its own operating system on the desktop space that's competing with Chrome OS. And Chrome OS is a big priority of Google's. So as you can see, Samsung doing this kind of puts Google in a position where they have their largest OEM partner just over there consorting with the enemies, so to speak. And it doesn't really uh, bode well for the people in Mountain View. So obviously they're going to need to act eventually. And today's episode is kind of about that, about how does Samsung's decision to go in with Microsoft affect Google and how does Google respond with their own counter moves so when you think about that you think about where Android is going and where it has been Android's 10th version was just released the other day to um, pixel phones central phones and a couple other phones that get updates immediately and it's a sad state of affairs. It's something that Apple points out and makes fun of Google and Android about a lot in that the install base a year later, after Android 9 Pie was released, a year later, only 10 to 15% of capable Android phones are running it. You still have some phones in market share purposes that are still running Android Jelly Bean, which is you know, comically dated at this point, considering most apps in the Play Store won't even work with it anymore. So updates have been a big problem for Google and a big problem for Android. And they always have been since day one. And to really drive that point home, 
this company named Counterpoint came out with this chart. Nice little chart. It's got a bunch of colored lines. It looks pretty nice. But it's basically the 12 month time frame after an Android update is released and how quickly are manufacturers updating. So as a reference point, iOS, when, uh, when iOS 13 drops, it's going to be available day one for almost all iPhones. And it's going to be available to most, more, about 80 some percent of iPhone users in the US. So the only people that will be excluded are the people using older iPhones are no longer supported. So in the case of iOS 13, the iPhone 6 series would be left out. So if you, you own a 6S all the way into an iPhone 10S, then you're probably getting iOS 13, unless you just choose not to install it. And Android, on the other hand, it's a very different situation because of the way Android updates are handled. Basically, it goes like this. Google comes out with their 10th version of Android, and they release it on the day that it goes to the beta channels and they release it for developers. And some of those developers are people who work for OEMs, who work for Samsung and LG and Huawei and these other companies. And it gets released to them. Then those companies need to add in what they want to add in. So they got to take the time to develop everything. Then on top of that, if you have an unsubsidized carrier device, so if you bought your phone from Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile or Sprint in the US or Vodafone or Orange in, in Europe, then they get they send that operating system to them to the uh, cellular provider so the cellular provider can put in whatever they need to do their their carrier management app uh, their partner apps like AT&T uses yellow pages for instance um, T-Mobile puts in a McAfee security app or whatever what a lot of us in the tech space like to call bloatware and but that's how these carriers make money is through these partnerships so that needs to happen so take that in contrast with what Apple does which is release it, get it verified by the carriers, and then release it to everybody, and it's instantaneous. Whereas there's so many hands in the pot, so to speak, with Android updates. So this kind of has created an issue. It's what a lot of people call Android fragmentation. Now this chart is interesting because it just shows that there's one manufacturer above and beyond everybody else. Now I'll get to them in a second. But if you look at it like this, after the latest Android launches, some of the worst, so some of the more well-known companies, Huawei, Xiaomi, Samsung, LG, and we'll say Oppo for the Chinese market, those are your big five companies, right? So let's look at them one by one. How do they fare? Samsung, 12 months after the latest Android release, is looking at... 30, 20 to 30% of Android adoption for the newest update. That's a year after. Huawei is about 35 to 40%. LG is just putrid at around 10%. And Oppo is right there with LG, about 10%. Xiaomi actually does pretty well, about 50 to 60%. But that's a year later. And, and if you look at like just three months after, which you would feel would be okay... Not one company outside of the one that I'm about to talk about is at 10%. You look at six months, all of them hover around under 30% or under. 
nine months. That's when you see Lenovo and Xiaomi kind of take the reins of all that. So Google is making this software and trying to push out new features, but none of their the bulk of these Android devices are on are made by these manufacturers. Like think about the names here. Huawei and Samsung alone account for the top two of three uh, primary smartphone manufacturers in the world. And it's just a interesting situation because Google's trying to do all these things to alleviate the amount of things that need to be put into an Android update. So they are decoupling parts of Android like the security portion versus the major OS portion. So at least they get more security updates. But the feature updates are still going to be the big OS thing. So a lot of these companies that end up using these other devices miss out on that. Now, the counterpoint there is that all these manufacturers, they put their own spin on Android and a lot of their phones do things that stock Android or Google's version of Android, as it were, cannot do. Samsung and Huawei have built-in screen recording, for example. LG does a couple of gesture things that aren't on stock Android. And it's just a, a idea where they differentiate themselves from stock Android a little bit. So that brings me to Google as a company, why this is so important to them. So when you really look at it, Google by nature is a software company. They don't excel in hardware, even though they make hardware with the Pixel line and Chromebooks and the Google Home line and all that stuff. But at their core, they're a software company. So when they have this software company, they're taking what is Android, which is an open source platform not owned by Google, and but they're the ones who are investing the most in it. So you have what they call now stock Android, which is really just the pixel experience is the best way of calling it because stock Android or AOSP's build of Android is very stripped down and bare bones. It looks nothing like the experience we have that you see on pixels and Android One devices now. So they're, t- they're adding more and more of their own spin to stock Android and you know creating a unique experience. But a lot of people just call it stock Android because of how clean and minimalist the UI actually is in comparison to one UI of Samsung, EMUI of Huawei, MIUI of Xiaomi, and LG Home UX from LG. So it becomes a thing where they need somebody as a company as that's going to push out a lot of units that is going to keep their devices updated like that that is going to keep pushing out the features that they're trying to push out at all price points google only makes flagship devices right they only make the pixel line pixel line you know they have the mid-range 3a but when you talk about like entry level Google doesn't really have a presence there in their made by Google portfolio because it kind of goes against what they want to do. They kind of want it to be a premium feel of a device. And it's a and they they feel like using a hundred dollar phone chassis, which is going to be mostly plastic, low end screens, low end components, so on and so forth, is not really the made by Google shtick. Right. So you think about that. And you think about who, as a partner, makes the most sense in the current climate 
to kind of drive home Google's software vision. And that company is Nokia. And I would contend that over the next few years, Samsung is going to be replaced in Google's eyes by Nokia. And what I mean by that is, think about the early days of Android. It was the G1 and Motorola had a little bit of steam with the Moto Droid on Verizon. But the company that really drove it to the masses was Samsung. You know, Samsung hadn't really been a huge player in the phone game. At that point, it was you know, BlackBerry and Palm were kind of big. HTC was doing its thing. Apple obviously came out with the iPhone. And Samsung was just kind of making flip phones that you know people liked, but you know, no one was really using all that heavily. You kind of associated Samsung phones with kind of like Sanyo phones back in the flip phone days. So ultimately, they needed to make a splash. So they dove all the way in on Android. Even though they made Windows mobile devices and they made Windows phone devices, Android was obviously the bread and butter for Samsung. And because how badly optimized and how lacking in features Android was in the early days, Samsung created TouchWiz, which made it more consumer friendly and got people to buy their phones. You know, that was the case probably for the first, I would say, four Galaxy S devices and the first or first Note, maybe the second Note as well. So as Samsung did this, Android started getting better. But as Android was getting better, Samsung users grew accustomed to an interface that was unique to Samsung. So they weren't just going to reverse course and change their whole thing to, you know, placate what Google was trying to do. They had developed their own brand, and they had developed their own look and feel, and they want to keep that, and which makes all the sense in the world. So what's, what Google needs is a company that shares their vision of what needs to be, what a phone operating system should be, because Google as a company is very idealistic, and they need a company that's equally idealistic to be able to really be that hardware partner that pushes devices out to the masses. I feel like Microsoft has this a little bit on the PC side with Lenovo. Lenovo kind of shares that industrial design motif with the Surface line so that you could look at it in a sense of if you don't really want to pay the extra money for a Surface, you'd be just as happy with a Lenovo device. And I think that over time you'll see Google look that way about Nokia phones like oh okay you don't want to buy a Pixel 4 when it comes out for like eight nine hundred dollars okay awesome here's this Nokia 7.2 running the same type of version of Android with timely security updates and that's going to be and that's going to be your lower cost version for like three four hundred dollars and if you end up looking at it that way that kind of helps Google corner a good portion of the smartphone market without having to compromise what Android is going to look and feel like. So remember I was talking about the counterpoint on a pie chart, or sorry, line chart, and Nokia is so far ahead of everybody else. Almost 100% adoption rate a year later for their entire portfolio. Now again, these are for manufacturers that have many phones. Nokia has a lot of phones. Basically any number from, from 1 to 9, Nokia has multiple phones with a name of that number. The one obviously being the most entry level to the nine pure view being their flagship. And 95% of those phones are on the latest version of Android 12 months after it's launched. And the, again, the closest even to that is Xiaomi about 60 some odd percent. 
even nine months in, over 80% adoption, which is insane. Now, the phones that don't get updated as quickly from Nokia are their super low-end ones. So think about it like this. If you spend three, dollars $400 on a Nokia 7.1, you're probably getting those updates quick. Or you just buy the Nokia 1, it might take a little bit longer, but you will get them within a year, which is a lot better than a lot of these other manufacturers can say. If you buy LG K30 or Q7, and you ever think you're getting the next version of Android, you're fooling yourself, it's never gonna happen. Just because LG eventually updates their flagships and totally forgets about their mid-range and entry-level devices. So, if that's important, then getting security updates and getting the newest version of Android is important to you, like it is important to Google, then Nokia is the way to go. But the real question though becomes, how did these companies get here? And we'll start with Nokia. Nokia is a company that is so well known now and has been for many years as a company that really pushed phones and phone design to the forefront. If you really go all the way back, all the old phones, all the old Nokia phones that people were using, they once upon a time before the smartphone, Nokia was the number one phone manufacturer in the world. And they held that crown for many years. And as time went on and smartphones proliferated, Nokia was using their in-house Symbian operating system. And to really best describe Symbian, because it really never took off in the US, it was more big in the Middle East and in Europe and Asia. But Symbian kind of took a little bit of BlackBerry and a little bit of Android to create this interesting operating system. Now I had the Nokia E71 and E72 devices. Now those are like Nokia's Blackberry device wannabe lookalikes. And they're running Symbian. And I enjoyed the experience, but it definitely was dated as things were going more touchscreen, things were going more immersive, and things of that nature. So they went all in with the Nokia N8 on making Symbian touch friendly, and that didn't really work for the fact that there was no real app store, the UI was clunky, the touchscreen wasn't really that good on that device. So then what do they do? They decide to go into something called Migo. And this kind of came out when a lot of phone operating systems were being developed because it was all trying to compete with the iPhone and catch up with Android. So you would have BlackBerry was working on something, you had WebOS, Firefox OS was starting to get talked about, and you had Windows Phone out in the marketplace as well. And what Migo was, was a Linux-based mobile operating system that was heavily financed by Nokia. And the one phone that they had it on was a Nokia N9, which was, the operating system was interesting, but again, just never took off because of a lack of of an app store. And the UX and the UI was interesting, but ultimately never really got there. And Nokia was bleeding money, so they had to do something. So they had a choice. Either they were going to go, they had to become another OEM partner. So they're either going to go all in on Android or continue doing what they're going to do, or they're going to find a different operating system. And Nokia surveyed the landscape at the time and found that they really didn't want to be yet another Android OEM. 
and they decided to go all in and be an exclusive Windows Phone partner. Now, an interesting thing here is that Windows Phone's partnership with Nokia probably was helped by the fact that the then CEO of Nokia, uh, Stephen Elop, was a former Microsoft employee. So he had that relationship with Steve Ballmer, the then CEO of Microsoft, and they end up making Windows Phone devices. And that at a time was when Windows Phone was growing, right? So it was still showing signs that it could be a viable platform, but ultimately the Nokia found it having the same problem as Migo and Symbian, no proper app support, and it was just not working in the way they wanted it to work. The Nokia Lumia devices, Windows Phone devices, were amazing. They had excellent hardware, excellent cameras for the time, and I mean, some can argue that even a Nokia Lumia 920 probably could still hang today in terms of photo quality. Obviously not with shutter speed and AI and all that stuff, but the cameras were leaps and bounds over what everybody else was doing in the marketplace. So eventually, Nokia is still hemorrhaging money, still losing money. So what do they do? They end up selling off their smartphone division to Microsoft. Microsoft then creates a couple more Lumia devices before Satya Nadella takes over, and then they kill Windows Phone. So where this left Nokia was an abandoned company, but there were some people who didn't make the shift to Microsoft because they didn't want to work in Redmond, and they were in Finland still, that's where Nokia originally was founded, and they created a company called HMD Global. HMD Global then resurrected the patents of Nokia and the naming of Nokia and licensed it and were going to make their own phones and it was going to be Nokia's comeback. And they were looking at it and they were a small company. So they didn't really have the infrastructure to build out an operating system and a skin and do all this stuff that Nokia was able to do back in the 90s and early 2000s. So what do they do? They look around, they see Google and their Android One program. They say, we'll do this because it's going to give us a clean interface. This is going to give us a look and feel that's going to be very Nokia. And we're going to go all in on security with Android, and we're going to go all in on the Google experience and Google apps of Android. So they start building out these entry-level Nokia One, Nokia Android One devices, and they're received well. The Nokia 6 has been received well. The Nokia 7 Plus was received very well. And as time's gone on, they have continued to update their devices and are a growing smartphone manufacturer, have cracked the top 10 in recent months as in terms of overall shipments because people around the world still associate the name and the phones are performing very well. And they're at a competitive price point to be able to move some units. So that brings us to the Nokia side of the equation. Now let's go to the Google side of the equation. Google for years has been developing and trying to make Android integrated with their services and and so on and so forth. Google wants you to use as much of their services as they possibly can. They want you to use YouTube, they want you to use Search, they want you to use Gmail because this is how they drive ads to you and that's really how they make a lot of their money. But as time has gone on, they're really trying to create this full-fledged ecosystem. And the issue with wanting to do that is 
they don't have the market share as a phone manufacturer to really back that up. They they were making Nexus devices forever, but that was using an OEM partner like LG, Huawei, Samsung, Motorola, so on and so forth. But they really just needed to have a company that was lockstep in them with what they wanted to do. Because right now, across the Android landscape, a lot of these companies just kind of use Google. And what I mean by that is, they know that people are looking for Android because their apps are going to be available on the Play Store. They don't really care about the Google-based optimizations. They don't really care about things that Google is doing with Assistant or things of that nature. Notice how Huawei and Samsung make their own AIs, they have a bunch of separate app stores, they have separate their own separate apps, so they try to make it as non-Google associated as possible. So it's kind of like a, a forced partnership because there is no real better option. Even Huawei, uh, with their upcoming phones because of all their legal troubles, is going to bundle up their phones without Google apps or Google services in it, which is a huge development that we'll probably be talking about on another episode of the podcast. But as Google has gone on, they've really focused on making Android more Google-centric into what their vision is. And to get an idea of what that is, you have to look no further than what Chrome OS is doing. Chrome OS is updated by Google. It doesn't matter who you buy the device from. It's the same experience. And that's kind of ultimately what Google's trying to do because that allows them to push all of their updates out and all their services to the forefront without having to risk a manufacturer going rogue and giving a customer bad experience. So with that, that's kind of where Google is trying to go. They're trying to integrate search more, make a system better. They're trying to do all these things to make the smartphone experience as locked into Google as possible. And you see them doing this on low-end devices. You see them doing it on non-smartphones. So. The Nokia feature phones that have been released recently are running something called KaiOS. KaiOS is a feature phone operating system with some smart capabilities because a lot of these phones support 3G. And some actually have 4G LTE. So they made versions of Google Maps and Google Assistant for KaiOS. Why? Because even people with super low-end feature phones could leverage the idea of using navigation and of doing voice search to find out things like the weather or a sports score or quick facts that they're looking up. So Google wants to be having its services so ingrained in everything. And the big issue is, is that these other manufacturers just hide that Google integration. Some do a better job than others. LG, for instance, doesn't has really stripped away a lot of what they used to do but you look at Motorola phones and HTC phones using Alexa in addition to Google Assistant. Samsung using Bixby. Huawei not even going to be using Google Apps moving forward. All these are companies that move units that really threaten Google's bottom line. So when you really are looking at it in that aspect, Google really needs a new Samsung for this next generation of Android devices to really be lockstep with them on their software because now finally... Android and Google's version of Android is competent enough it doesn't need interference from other manufacturers. And it hasn't for a while, but these manufacturers have just been kind of going with it. So let's talk about why this partnership that could happen between Google and Nokia 
could make so much sense. First, you think about the cachet that Nokia has as a brand. They are still synonymous with excellence in Europe and in Africa. The Middle East still has an affinity for Nokia as well. Even in the U.S., Nokia is a name that we recognize. They haven't made a relevant consumer smartphone since probably the the first Lumias that were on AT&T, and that was five, six years ago. But they still have that name recognition that is a device that is built well, sturdy, and reliable. And they go, go into that with Android One, and that's a clean software experience that everybody could get pick up and use, and that doesn't require a bunch of extra hardware to run efficiently. So that puts Nokia in a position to make excellent devices with excellent phone and software support. So what does this do for Google? So this puts so many more devices in potential customers' hands that are very Google-centric. If you pick up an Android One device and you pick up a Pixel, you feel like they're running the same operating system because they are. Generally, most of your features that are going to be on a Pixel are going to be on a Nokia phone or an Android One device in general. And you look at this Android One program, Nokia is really the only highlight of companies making these phones. Nokia's entire portfolio is Android One. The rest is just a bunch of no-name brands or a well-named brand that maybe only put out one Android One device. Example being LG put out the G7 One, which was a watered-out version of their G7 running Android One. Xiaomi makes a couple Mi phones that are running Android One. Other than that, that's it. So Google could look at it like, okay, you want the high-end, super-end photography stuff with clean Android build? That's what Pixel 4 is for. You want something that's just going to work properly? That's what Nokia's are for. And again, I, I go back to Nokia 7.1. A $350 phone at launch. Now it could be easily had for under $300. You know, $250 or $299. Think about what you're getting. A mid-range SoC there. Snapdragon 600 series. With 4 gigs of RAM. With a good amount of storage. A nice design. And ultimately, that's a, a device that can appeal to a lot of people. Look at that compared to a $300 Samsung or $300 LG. They're going to be much more attractive and they're going to get better security updates and they're going to get better over time. It's a partnership that makes so much sense because it allows Google to have a manufacturer cover the low end without having to compromise what Google feels the integrity of a smartphone should be. I've used the Nokia 6.1 for example and while not flagship performing for your basic tasks and everything, it did everything admirably. And that's a $200 phone. So ultimately what it becomes is Google has a vision for software and they want more and more manufacturers to pick up on it. And them looking at the fact that Nokia updates their their phones in a timely fashion with security updates and major OS updates, that Nokia is getting more serious about their devices. And now Nokia's had a couple blunders. There have been a couple phones that have missed. The Nokia 5 series never really has made too much sense. The Nokia 9 Pure View was a little disappointing for a flagship, as was the Nokia 8 Sirocco. 
Now, that's really Nokia's problem is building out a good flagship and ironically getting their imaging chops back up to snuff. What I would like to see is Google leveraging that Google camera technology on Nokia phones. Because what that's going to allow you to do, that's going to create a low-end experience with Nokia to be able to get that great experience. Because you really think of what the whole ethos of a Pixel is. It's not the most powerful phone. It's not the best battery life phone. It never has and it never will be. Google has never tried to claim it as such. A lot of people joke and say that the Pixels are Google's iPhone. And that's, in a sense, accurate. Because they're simple, they're straightforward, they work, and they take great pictures. So when you buy a Pixel, you want a clean software experience that's reliable and a camera that's going to take great pictures for you regardless of the situation. Why wouldn't they leverage that more onto a device that's committed to stock Android or to the Pixel experience, so to speak, and use that camera technology there? So think about it this way. You could buy a $300 Nokia phone and still take great pictures. Maybe they might not be as good as what a Pixel 3 or a Pixel 4 when that comes out is going to be, but they'll be doable, they'll be good enough for Instagram, good enough for Snapchat. And that, I think, is how Nokia and, and Google could really take it to the next level because if you, you look at it, Samsung is just going further and further and further away towards Microsoft and towards building out their own experience and they have been for a long time so why not go all in with a company that is committed to this so if this happens well what happens to the other companies if you think about it samsung and huawei are probably the two who would be most unaffected by this both are big enough to have relationships and partnerships with companies to be able to see a life beyond Android. Microsoft's partnership with Samsung puts them in a good position, like was mentioned on last week's episode, that they could leverage the power of the Windows Store and the cachet of Samsung as a brand to bring app developers on to develop for that platform. Where Nokia becomes a interesting partner for, for Google is that it gives Google that presence in Europe, that strong mid-range presence in Europe that they have lacked. You know, because if you go throughout Europe, you know, you see a lot of Huawei, you see a lot of Samsung, but you don't really see a lot of Nokia yet. But with the proper backing from Google and the real optimization there, you become, start looking at a situation that is very pro what Google's trying to do that gives you access to so many more people and I'm really interested to see the type of phones Nokia puts out moving forward now if they could if Samsung continues on this trajectory now think about some other manufacturers think about where this leaves LG LG is kind of in an interesting place because they're more in line with what Google's trying to do but they haven't gone full Android 1 and I think if they do that, if they really go all in on Android One, that could be a huge win for Google as well. And a good win for LG, because LG's reputation right now is basically 
oh, it does a lot of things good, but nothing great. Okay, what if you had that, and everybody always knocks LG's software, which, for the record, isn't that bad. You know, I use a G8 myself, and it's a device that has been very smooth, very stable for me since day one. So, that's kind of a fallacy. But when you put in the fact, oh yeah, now these LGs run stock Android, run the Pixel experience, you'll be like, oh, okay, that's cool. I like that. And let's go ahead and, and you know, try this phone out. And what you're going to be seeing is if LG prices it right. So let's do a hypothetical scenario. Let's say the G9 is released at the beginning of next year. And it's running stock Android and Android One and, and all that. And LG's done some things with the camera to, to differentiate it a little bit, right? And also, fun fact is that Google's rolling out Project Soli with the air gestures for the Pixel 4. LG has been kind of dabbling in those air gestures with the G8. And what if they made it actually work properly on the G9? So that's a thought. But let's say it comes out and it has stock Android. And at that point, you'll have the Galaxy S10 out, and that's probably gonna be running around $1,000 with all of its Microsoft stuff and so on and so forth. What if LG comes out, $700 G9 running stock Android, guaranteed updates, no bloatware from the carrier. That's a compelling device. It becomes a compelling offer. Now, the thing of it too, is that the way Google wins here is you, you have LG and you have Google and you have these two companies that are well associated with one another and it becomes a 2v1 strategy on the Android space. So now when somebody comes into a carrier, they're looking around and they're saying, okay, I see that Samsung, what else you got? Then you would look at an LG, then you would look at a Pixel. And who knows, maybe they, they think about the LG or think about the Pixel if that has a design that is appealing to them. And the overall point of that is that Google ultimately, with a partner in LG and in Nokia, could really appeal because Nokia has that cachet overseas. LG, as maligned as they might be here, is still a very recognizable name in the US. So if you put a good software face on an LG device, who knows what could happen? Because LG has gotten better cameras, they pioneered the wide-angle camera. So getting Google's optimized software on their phones would be a huge win. And that ultimately is something that could really intensify things, because look at what that would leave you. That would leave you with Apple, with iOS, and all the cachet and recognition and device sales that that brings. You'll have Samsung aligned with Microsoft. And then you'll have Google aligned with Nokia and LG. And then in the other parts of the world, in Asia and Europe, you'll have Huawei doing their own thing with Freedom OS that I think they're gonna be developing more and more over time. So ultimately, what you really think about here is partnerships that make the landscape competitive again. And maybe this is just me having a pipe dream and wanting to see companies like Nokia and LG compete again. And as much as I'd like to see a company like HTC be resurrected, I think their time is over, or Motorola to do something a little bit more interesting than making budget phones. But I'm really curious as to what you guys think about that. Do you think that Google is going to invest into HMD Global and Nokia 
to make that pixel-like experience better? Or, and here's another thought, what if that experience leads to LG and Nokia making Chromebooks? What if that leads them to making Google Home smart assistant speakers? And so on and so forth. So it's a partnership that can yield many avenues. You look at LG's headphone line, a lot of their LG tones include Google Assistant now. So it's not something that's so beyond the pale of recognition. But again, I'm just curious to hear what your guys' thoughts on that is. Uh, that is going to conclude another episode here of the Yellow Tech Road. Thank you again for listening and supporting the podcast. Uh, any thoughts, reviews, anything like that is very much appreciated. Uh, quick uh, shout out to my friend Shelby, who listens to the podcast regularly, has her coworkers listening to it regularly. So I appreciate that a ton. And everybody who is listening regularly to the podcast. Any ideas you'd like to hear discussed and analyzed, please let me know. I will be coming out with another episode later this week uh, centered around Android 10 and what that really means for what Google's trying to do with the phone. And of course, in this is September 4th today, in about a week, um, six days actually, Apple will be announcing the iPhone 11, presumably. So definitely going to have an episode about that coming up. But thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, but this is Omar, the Yellow Tech Road, and I will catch you guys on the next episode. Peace.